from our perspective, you know, we think we are the premier global organization and greatest wrestlers in the world want to be in the greatest platform. So uh, we have a lot of confidence in our ability to manage that. I am now a full-time member of the AEW roster. There are a lot of really great people under contract at WCW, but you just don't need that many people under contract, especially... This is the same thing that's going on with WWE right now, though. They're signing everybody, and they can't use everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, and uh, I've been joined by no one again this week. I'm here all by myself doing another monologue on the professional wrestling business. I think this is the only podcast, the only form of media anywhere in the world other than articles published by myself, maybe, that focus uh, pretty much exclusively on the wrestling business, on the economics of professional wrestling. And uh, you, you may be listening to this in audio form only, in the traditional WrestleNomics podcast feed. You may be listening and watching this on YouTube, because I'm going to uh, I'm going to get into some spreadsheets today, and I'm going to go over W's other media segments. And I think it's really helpful, and I found that it's really helpful over the last few years of doing this stuff and sharing it with people, is that we can not just read numbers and talk about numbers in an audio form and in a straightforward text, but you can give some visual representation that's go along with it. Or at least in this case, uh, when we talk about spreadsheets, it'd be nice maybe if I could actually show them to you, so it's a little bit easier to follow, especially in the case of uh, this one topic I'm going to talk about today, which is I'm trying to unpack WWE's other media segment which includes home entertainment, uh, W Studios, and Mixed Match Challenge money, uh, reality TV show money, and all the big money that W is getting from Saudi Arabia uh, for those big live events there, and and also in the most recent quarter, Q4 2018, the money that W got for the Super Showdown in Australia. So... If you're watching this on YouTube right now, you see a giant WrestleNomics radio logo, I think, hopefully. And uh, I'm going to take that away now, and we're going to go into the Google spreadsheet. And I'll try to explain just exactly what's happening in as concise way as possible without being too boring here. Uh, but let's see. So WWE uh, has this segment now that they call within within their media division, right? So WWE is broken down. It's revenue streams. They break them down into three major divisions, which, uh, let's see if I can... Look at one that is more current here. They have three major divisions, which they have are media, live events, and consumer products, which actually in this, this older version, we can just look at this older version. They have media, they have live events, and they have consumer products. So media is made up of, uh, and, and still, this is an older one, but it's still, all these segments are pretty much still there. Uh, and this gives a little bit more detail because now they've sort of slammed all these uh, divisions together, and to some degree, we don't have as much detail as we used to. So media includes pay-per-view, includes the W Network. Uh, it used to include video on demand when that was a more relevant piece of their business. It includes all the money they get from television, which is their biggest piece of revenue. Home entertainment, which is basically their DVD business. Digital media, which used to be defined as things like W.com and YouTube revenue. That one has been, been one of the segments that has been renamed as advertising and sponsorship. But anyway, of course, we have the live events business, which is basically just ticket sales and some travel packages that go along with it. The consumer products division, which is licensing, which uh, are things like video games, toys, action figures. Also, the mobile games, I believe, are also in licensing. Venue merchandise, obviously, that's the merchandise that's sold at the venues, at W shows themselves. And then there's W shop, which is merchandise that's sold online. And 
They used to break out as a totally separate division, W Studios, but that has since been included into another segment within the media division. So starting in 2018, they, we're looking at a trending schedule here on YouTube right now. So starting in 2018, they sort of reconfigured how they display this in their trending schedules and in, in all their SEC filings. So that now if I pull up the current uh, trending schedule, the most recent publication of their trending schedules on the WB corporate website, We'll look at it and see if you go into the revenue page. Now, under media, we just have the network, which includes pay-per-view. We have core content rights fees, which are TV rights fees related only to Raw and SmackDown. Uh, advertising and sponsorship, which I believe only refers to YouTube revenue and W.com revenue, I believe. And we can get into to looking at what exactly the, the definitions are. Uh, and then other, which there's a footnote on other, which reads, other forms of media monetization reflect revenues earned from the distribution of other content, including but not limited to scripted reality and other in-ring programming, as well as theatrical and direct-to-home video releases. So I've got this spreadsheet here, a Google Sheet. I, I believe I've linked to this on Twitter. Uh, so it shouldn't be too hard to find if you want to look at it for yourself. I've tweeted a screenshot of, of this spreadsheet itself. So the other segment now includes W Studios, Home Entertainment, Reality TV Rights Fees, Mixed Match Challenge, the Saudi Arabia events, and the one so far Australia event. My big question though was when I sat, what reason why I sat down to try to unpack this segment and to see how much money, how much of the other media segment made up what was because I wanted to know, of course, how much money W was getting from Saudi Arabia. I believe Dave Meltzer on Wrestling Observer Radio some months ago said that uh, it's a 10 year deal worth, and I've got a, a, a column graph here. To illustrate just how much money this this thing is worth on an annual basis, four hundred fifty million dollars uh, over ten years, Meltzer reported. And if if that's the case, then you look at that in comparison to WWE's other big business deals. Uh, you look at the new deal that's going to come into effect at the end of this year, just for Raw with NBC Universal to air it on the USA Network is worth an average of two hundred forty million dollars on an average annual basis. This is estimated sort of based on reports and whatnot. Uh, the SmackDown deal on an average annual basis, $205 million. Uh, WWE's second biggest, second and third biggest TV deals uh, in India, $34 million a year. In, in uh, the UK, $33 million a year. And these are, they'll probably get upgrades in India and in the UK whenever those new deals are announced. And uh, then you got $7.5 million on an annual basis for the Canadian TV deal. And uh, so you put that into context, you know, this uh, Saudi Arabia deal is bigger than their second and third biggest TV deals. Just to give you an idea of, you know, this is not a small money situation. And uh, Saudi Arabia making this deal with WWE is not just uh, a matter of kind of like it is in, in other live event situations where WWE goes to the international markets and runs shows. Yes, there may be a local promoter involved, but it's not just a matter of WWE deciding that El Saudi Arabia would be a good market to run in and they could sell some tickets there. This is the government making a deal to pay them really well to do you know, what we might call bot shows. It's basically, basically these are the biggest bot shows in the history of professional wrestling. Um, which if, if this report by Dave Meltzer was correct is worth $45 million a year. Now I've got some data that um, I'm going to show that at least in 2018 certainly was worth more than $45 million in the year, uh, by my estimation. So I've, I know because of the training schedule that I showed, I know what the values were in revenue for W studios and W home entertainment for, each quarter in 2016 and 17, and those are entered here in black. And those are reported by W itself. And I also know, because W sort of retroactively reported what the revenue totals were for the other segment, 
I know what those numbers are as well. So those are also up here reported in black. So because W Studios and W Home Entertainment are just two pieces among, let's say, one, two, three, four, five, six pieces of the other segment, what I've done is I've taken the other total that has been published by WWE, I subtracted the W Studios and W Home Entertainment numbers that have been published by WWE and got an idea of like how much money is remaining, how much money is unaccounted for in this new configuration, this new way of reporting WWE revenue numbers. So what you find in 2016 Q1 is that there's $8 million left over. Okay, And in that, in Q1 2016, there was no Mixed Smash Challenge yet. There was no Saudi Arabia event. There was no Australia event. And that will be the case all the way from 2016 Q1 all the way through the end of 2017. So what we know uh, about the entire years of 2016 and 2017 is basically this, this remainder number, unless there's something really unexpected and there's something I'm just not getting here, I'm really overlooking, then we know that these numbers, these remaining dollar amounts of in Q1 2016, 8 million, Q2 2016, 2.6 million, and so on. I'm not going to read the numbers off, but uh, if you want to look at the spreadsheet, you can. If you want to see the screenshot on my Twitter, you can. Uh, we, we can see how much money is left over, and I think that pretty much tells you this was how much money uh, belongs to reality TV show rights in those given quarters. So a total of in 2016, I'll just we can see the sum here in the corner. $21 million in 2016 would belong to reality TV show rights, in my estimation. Uh, in 2017, if we total that up, another $21.7 million. So that's what it is. 21 and 21.7. Okay, and I've gone down here and I've counted up the number of episodes within each quarter that aired for Total Divas. So, like, for example, in Q1 2016, there were 11 episodes of Total Divas. The following quarter, three episodes. The following quarter, there were no episodes, no reality TV show episodes aired. In Q4 2016, there were six episodes of Total Divas and six episodes of Total Bellas. Uh, so Total Bellas debuting at the end of 2016. And as we go on here, I've, I've counted them up uh, in 2017 for Total Divas and Total Bellas. And then, uh, of course, in 2018, Ms. and Mrs. Uh, debuted. So before we get too far ahead of myself here, so the, the real guesswork and calculations come in when we start to look at 2018, which we don't have WB self-reported, at least not directly self-reported figures for WB Studios and home entertainment. So the, what I'm really doing here is a lot of algebra, right? Like you, you probably thought when you graduated from high school that you would never use algebra again, but here I am using algebra and Microsoft Excel here to uh, learn things about the wrestling industry, hopefully. So what, what I learned by going back, not just by looking at the training schedules, but by looking at W quarterly reports and the annual report, was that I I know pretty much for sure that WWE made $6.7 million in revenue from WWE Studios. Why do I know that? Because, let's see, I've got it noted in this cell here. Because in the 10K, which is the annual report for 2018, it says this. These increases, and it's referring to uh, the increases in the WWE, I believe, media division. These increases were offset by an $11.9 million decline in WB Studios revenues, reflective of both the timing of our film releases and the performance of our released films. So it's saying that there was a $11.9 million decline uh, in 2018 you know, for WB Studios compared to the prior year. So what I did was, if you total the, the WB Studios revenues for 2017, you get a number of $18.6 million. So if you subtract $11.9 million from that, you get $6.7 million for the full year of 2018. 
Now, uh, let's see. If I go into Q3, the Q3 quarterly report, it says here, it said in, in the quarterly report itself, these increases were partially offset by a $2.5 million decline in W Studios revenues, W Studios revenues. So I know that there was $2.5 million, uh, in Q3 2018, less than 2017 Q3. So 4.2 minus 2.5 leaves us with 1.7. And it just so turns out, uh, just so happens that if you take the $6.7 million that you know is in the full year of 2018 for W Studios, you subtract 1.7, and then you divide the the remainder of that across the three remaining uh, quarters that are unknown to you, you, you get basically $1.7 million uh, for each one so that you do get a total of $6.7 million. So I think this is a pretty safe, there's maybe some margin of error here. These, you know, it's not necessarily 1.7 in each of these lighter orange cells here. It may be a little less, a little more. Um, now, when, I, when I'm talking about, uh, I'm trying to get an idea of how much money W made from Saudi Arabia. Uh, being, I think being off by a few million doesn't dramatically change the story, but there will be a margin of error here within a, a few, I don't know, within, I don't know, five to 15 million maybe. Um, as we go on, we'll, we'll I'll try to be more accurate about this. So W Home Entertainment, uh, I just took a guess that uh, because, because the other segment is taking some of these revenue streams and just shoving them in so that W no longer needs to report on them. I figured maybe Home Entertainment was going to continue to decline, so I just took a, let's see, on the rate of decline from 2017 to 2018, it's a negative 33 uh, growth rate. I applied that across the, the four quarters for 2018. Uh, so these are the numbers that I'm just I'm throwing in there. I'm giving Home Entertainment s- some, some money here. Uh, again, these are just estimates. So then the guess would be, Here's Q1 with a with 5.7 million dollars remaining, uh, Q2 with 57 million dollars remaining, because of course that one includes the Greatest Royal Rumble event, and uh, 8.5 million dollars in Q3, 61.3 million dollars in Q4, and that of course includes Crown Jewel and Super Showdown. So because of the estimates estimates that I made in 2016 and 17, we get an idea of just how much money uh, each of the reality TV shows are worth. And so if you can see down here in this very bottom uh, row. It turns out if you divide the number of episodes by the number of unaccounted for revenue, which I think must belong to reality TV, then you get a range of about uh, $650,000 to $920,000 per episode of reality TV. And so I use those numbers to calculate, uh, let's see, $900,000 in uh, Q1 across five episodes of Total Divas. I guess it's about four and a half million dollars uh, in Q2, six episodes of Total Divas, or excuse me, Total Bellas, times $650,000, uh, estimated to be worth, let's see, nine, uh, $3.9 million. In Q3, uh, we've got two episodes of Total Divas, four episodes of Total Bellas, and six episodes of Ms. and Mrs. Uh, if it's an average of $690,000 per episode, that gives us $8.3 million. And then in Q4, uh, we've got eight episodes of Soul Divas. If those are worth $900,000 each, then that gives us, let's see, $7.2 million. So you take that money away from the, the, this number here that was remaining and 
to try to get an idea of what was left for Mixed Match Challenge and for any Saudi Arabia or Australian event. So Q1, you've got $1.2 million left. There were no Saudi Arabia event. There was no Australia event. So I figured that one point, roughly $1.2 million that I've got left estimated, well, maybe that's due to 11 episodes of Mixed Match Challenge within that quarter. That would mean Mixed Match Challenge is worth about $100,000 per episode. Now, I show that to somebody who uh, looks closely at W Stock, and uh, they told me that they think that estimate is way too high. Maybe it's only worth $10,000 per episode. So, But this is the, the amount of money that I was left with. It's, it's very well possible that the fees that W is getting for its reality programming on the E-Network and on the USA Network, in the case of Ms. and Mrs., uh, is escalating. And these numbers... These numbers are really just estimates based on what I was able to calculate in prior quarters. So this number of $900,000 per episode could be uh, too low. Nonetheless, uh, so there's 11 episodes in Q1, and uh, if, if this is correct, about $100,000 per episode for Mixed Match Challenge, and we carry that through to the one episode of Mixed Match Challenge in Q2, then you've got another $100,000 accounted for in Q2 off of $53.1 million. That leaves you with $53 million Uh left for, I can't think of anything that it would belong to other than Saudi Arabia uh, Greatest Royal Rumble money. Now, you can look at this and say, well, maybe home entertainment is too low. I can't see home entertainment being too much lower than the $1.9 million I've got here. Uh, reality TV could be a little bit higher. So this could be a few million too high. Uh, I don't think it's more than like 10 million too high. So we're, we're still in this estimate of like, you know, 40 to $50 million, maybe more than $50 million for the greatest Royal Rumble. Um, now it's possible that, uh, and, and again, you keep in mind, uh, you know, Meltzer reported, where's, where's that, where is our, our column graph that shows Meltzer reported that this is a 10 year deal worth $450 million. Um, we already seem to be at least equaling that, if not exceeding that here, just with the greatest Royal Rumble. Now it's possible that the greatest Royal Rumble being the first event of this 10 year deal with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was had some sort of initial sign on bonus or some sort of upfront bonus. So maybe the first year will just be bigger than the rest. And that's something to watch for as we go forward, studying closely W business. Um, now, of course there's going to be crown jewel, which we'll talk about in a minute, which will, which came up in Q4 because that happened on November 2nd. So, in Q3, uh, we've got $200,000 left over, and there were two episodes of Mixed Match Challenge, and that seems to work out, uh, in, you know, consistently with what I, what I was able to estimate Mixed Match Challenge being worth. Again, somebody else thinks it's worth only $10,000, and, and they could be right, but this seems to make sense mathematically. $200,000 left for two, two episodes of Mixed Match Challenge worth an average of, you know, $100,000 or $110,000 per episode. So, had to have some seltzer there. So, uh, in Q4, I've got $7.2 million left for reality TV. If you subtract that out of the total of $63.5 million and take my estimate of uh, W Studios out of it, take my estimate of home entertainment out of it, we're left with $54.1 million. And there was uh, some, there was no mix match challenge. Yes, there was. Yes, there were 11 episodes of Mixed Match Challenge in there. If those are worth about $110,000 per episode, that means you've got $1.2 million left for Mixed Match Challenge. And you've got a grand total of $52.9 million left to split up in some unknown portion between Australia's Super Showdown and Saudi Arabia's Crown Jewel. Now, let's see. I think it's hard to say just what the split might have been like. Um, so the first thing I did was to, to try to understand, well, how much money 
how much money was the Saudi was the uh, the Australia Super Showdown worth? So I found a, a seating chart and I found some ticket prices for the Australia event and uh, I did some some basically some eyeball estimates on uh, on the prices and on the number of seats that were out there. So I took all these uh, Australian ticket prices and I converted them to U.S. dollars. Uh, I got gave myself an idea of what each ticket price category uh, made up as a percentage of the total seating seating capacity. Uh, I took uh, the observer's report of sixty-two thousand tickets being uh, people being in attendance. Uh, WWE made it, made an announcement of something like seventy thousand, some odd, whatever. So let, let's let's uh, let's be generous to the idea that maybe the Saudi Arabia deal wasn't wor- wasn't worth that much. And so let's be generous and say, well, maybe there were six. Let's say, let's say there were sixty-two thousand sold at super, at the Super Showdown. So we get all these numbers for the number of tickets sold in each, each section. Multiply them by their respective ticket price, and we get a total gate of twenty-five million dollars uh, based on those estimates. And again, I'm being being generous to the idea that there maybe there were a lot of tickets for this event sold, just to be generous to the idea that maybe WWE didn't make that much money uh, from Saudi Arabia. But there's still a lot of unknown here because we don't know just what the terms of the deal were between the local promoter in Australia, which was TEG. Um, could have been a 50-50 split. It could have been something much more complicated than that. Uh, but if it was, let's say, $25 million and you took $25 million, uh, I don't know, and split that in half, you've got $12.5 million for for both each the local promoter and WWE. You're still left with, what is that? Uh, let's see. If I get the uh, the Microsoft calculator out here and take uh, $52.9 million and subtract out... Uh, $12.5 million, you're left with $40 million, an additional $40 million uh, to be attributed to the Crown Jewel event. Um, and again, that that's just a, a speculation. Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't assert anything with a lot of certainty just how this money breaks down other than to say I've got fi- almost $53 million left here that I can't account for in, in any other way than to say they are the value of Crown Jewel and Super Showdown combined. So all of, all of those numbers... All of that uh, that stuff and all that Google spreadsheet stuff that we just went through. And I think the big takeaways that I learned from this was um, the value of, of a few of these media properties. So so it would be this. Reality TV is worth somewhere between $650,000 and $920,000 per episode. Maybe a little bit more if those rights are escalating. Uh, it's really hard to unpack just what the value would be for Ms. and Mrs., and uh, what the differences in the values are between Total Divas and Total Bellas. Uh, I did look at reality TV show viewership and found that Total Bellas is uh, now exceeding Total Divas in terms of viewership. Ms. and Mrs. is doing better than either of them uh, because they, they get the lead in from Raw. So yeah, uh, so almost a million dollars for some of these reality TV show episodes. Uh, the math tells me that Mixed Match Challenge, $100,000. Um, and Crown Jewel, about $50 million. Maybe more, and uh, Australia and Saudi Arabia in Q4 again. That's Crown Jewel and Super Showdown combined, fifty-three million dollars. So I, I would think, you know, maybe this first first year of this Kingdom of Saudi Arabia event was front loaded. And I'm going to pull up this column graph again that just shows the value of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia deal worth uh, reported by the Observer, reported on, I believe, Wrestling Observer Radio by Dave Meltzer, forty-five million dollars a year, uh, at least in 2018. Uh, it's certainly seems to be exceeding that. So I think that's all I needed to say about W's other media segment. And I just wanted to bring up 
something that I didn't talk about the last time I recorded here, which, where George Berrios was actually asked on the W conference call about another wrestling promotion that is out there. And then, you know, you, you, you mentioned investing in your talent base um, in 2019. We've, we've seen in recent months a new wrestling promotion announced. Just wondering how this is potentially impacting the market for talent and, you know, whether you're seeing more cost inflation there than normal. Thanks. Yeah, too early to tell. You know, we wouldn't talk about the specifics of that. You know, from our perspective, you know, we think we are the premier uh, global organization and greatest wrestlers in the world uh, want to be in the greatest platform. So uh, we have a lot of confidence in our ability to manage that. Okay, thanks. So that was David Karnofsky. Uh, on the conference call, one of the financial analysts asking George Barrios, uh, and, you know, WWE, this is basically in line with everything that WWE has, uh, said over the last several years. They don't like to acknowledge any other wrestling company as competition. They like to think of any other form of entertainment as competition. And actually, George Barrios, uh, later in the day, last week, Thursday, was on CNBC just after their financial reporting came out. He was on the closing bell. Sort of differentiator, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong, is the content. I mean, do you have any direct competitors? Well, you know, in our world, which is entertaining people, everything that puts a smile on someone's face or gets their attention is a competitor. And I, I would say the best thing I ever heard was Reed Hastings describing competition. And he said, sleep is competition. Now it's Absol- Fortnite. Yeah. Well, now it's Fortnite. And we, us too, right? I mean, it, you keep an eye on that. What we hope, we did almost 6 billion hours of video consumed around the world in 18, is that we can cut through the clutter. You know, and so if we have enough fans who are saying, hey, I want to get my WWE, we think we can cut through the clutter. There's George Barrios saying that their competition is anything that people's eyeballs want to do and even sleep, as Reed Hastings, the Netflix executive, says. They're even in competition with sleep. And I, I always say Vince McMahon is definitely in a competition with sleep. So that, that leads us to, I, I think, the, the subject of AEW itself. AEW, of course, is all elite wrestling. A new wrestling promotion founded by Tony Khan, the son of Shad Khan, the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, a guy who's actually got more money than uh, Vince McMahon himself. He's a billionaire with a who had a, has uh, he's an auto parts entrepreneur. Of course, uh, he's not, there's no reason to think that uh, Shad Khan is necessarily going to uh, put billions of dollars into this wrestling company, but. But uh, the, here's somebody who has a lot of money. This seems serious. AEW uh, seems to be looking for TV. And uh, maybe they'll get TV before the end of the year. We'll see. So Double or Nothing tickets went on sale uh, this past week on Monday. And let's see here. On on Thursday, uh, February 7th, the same day as W's uh, earnings report and conference call, uh, AEW had a rally in Las Vegas. And uh, Kenny Omega, kind of as some people speculated and uh, maybe some expected, he came out and he uh, announced that he is he has joined the AEW roster. You know, first and foremost, I must apologize. I made you guys wait an, an incredibly long time for me to make this announcement. And trust me, it was never my intention. It's just so strange the way the world works with legalities and all that. But rest assured, I didn't put pen to paper until this morning. But I'm... But I am very happy and excited to announce that yes, I am, I have found my phone and oh yes, I am now a full-time member of the AEW roster. So Kenny Omega not just joining the AEW roster, but also his lower third 
uh, noted that he is an executive vice president, which means that he's joining Cody Rhodes, uh, each of the Young Bucks, Nick Jackson and Matt Jackson, uh, as well as, I believe, uh, Brandy Rhodes is, well, the, uh, I don't know if she's an EVP, but she's definitely what the chief brand officer, similar title to Stephanie McMahon in WWE. But uh, there's a number of wrestlers here who are part of the roster, it seems, and who are also seemingly corporate employees. So maybe they'll be getting benefits like health insurance and whatnot that, uh, you know, most wrestlers throughout the wrestling world do not get. So just a rundown of the people who are in AEW who are part of the roster. Uh, I, I'm sure there are different contracts involved here, but just people who are, who seem to be involved with AEW at this point. Chris Jericho, Christopher Daniels, Chuck Taylor, Shima, Cody. Frankie Kazarian, Adam Page, Jimmy Havoc, Joey Janela, Jungle Boy, Kenny Omega, Matt Jackson, uh, MJF, that's Maxwell, Jacob Freeman, uh, Nick Jackson, Pac, Penta L0M, that's Pentagon for, for those of you who remember Lucio Underground, Ray Phoenix, Sammy Guevara, Scorpio Sky, and Trent Beretta. Uh, those are just the male wrestlers. Uh, female wrestlers, Aja Kong, Brandy Rhodes, Dr. Britt Baker, Kylie Ray, Nyla Rose, Penelope Ford, that's Sunny Kiss listed under female wrestlers here in uh, in Wikipedia land, and uh, Yuka Sakazaki. So, uh, I be- I believe that Kenny Omega will have uh, a role of maybe booking a lot of women talent here. I know uh, Tony Khan in his talk with Chris Jericho talked about how he wants to uh, you know make the women's division sort of like the cruiserweight division was for uh, WCW, something that sets it apart from other brands of wrestling. Um, so tickets for Double or nothing in MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas. The event sent for uh, May 25th. Uh, we're put on sale on Monday. There are a lot of pre-sale codes given out. Uh, on Wednesday, the pre-sale, the pre-sale opened, and uh, it sold out within minutes. Uh, Cody told Jim Ross on uh, some form of media that there were 11,600 seats uh, opened for the MGM Grand Arena. I know Meltzer went on uh, Wrestling News Radio and uh, basically said that the market for Double or Nothing show in the pre-sale was about 43,500 tickets. Um, I understand the actual average number of tickets uh, bought per user was about 2.9 and uh, maybe just under 20,000 pre-sale codes total. Uh, about 15,000 pre-sale codes went into the pre-sale waiting room and uh, t- if you take out the people who bought six or more tickets, which could include a lot of scalpers, that leaves an average of about 2.3 tickets being bought per user. So you could guess demand uh, for Double or Nothing might have been around 40,000 tickets. Um, I mean, you could be skeptical of that, though, because urgency for for tickets uh, for ringside is not the same as, as they would be for upper-level tickets, right? The, the pricing on a larger venue uh, might be different if you had something bigger than the MGM Grand Arena, if you're doing a... Uh, I know a mid-sized stadium that maybe could hold thirty or forty thousand uh, seats, but I you know, I think the double or nothing event likely could have done twenty thousand, maybe twenty-five thousand, uh, if if that many seats were available. Uh, so all these ticket prices, by the way, I and mean, if you're looking at this on YouTube, you can see the seating chart. Uh, and these are the ticket prices in the lower left corner. I can probably blow these up. Um, obviously, you had ticket prices that were. Uh, underpriced relative to demand. You have the lowest ticket price when you include taxes and fees at about $37, the most expensive at about $211. So I think it's interesting to think about this, like uh, a lot of new media adventures, new media adventures like Netflix and even the W Network, which I think part of their business model is to underprice at the beginning, get people uh, into their product, get buzz around their product, get a lot of uh, habitual use of their product, and then over time gradually raise the price. 
So maybe that's something that AEW will do with their live events as time goes on if they continue to be successful. Um, I know ticket prices were raised uh, slightly just before they were put on sale, maybe the day before they were put on sale. Executive vice presidents ag- agreed to that. And uh, I think the most important thing for AEW is that they had a hot crowd there that it, that it sold out. Obviously, this is a company that's going to put up a lot of money here before they ever uh, make that money back. Um, so if you look at the seating chart and... Uh, you know, Cody told JR 11,600 available. If you take some of those out, say take about 1,500 of them out for comps and whatnot, and uh, leave that maybe say that leaves you about 10,000 seats uh, sold as actual paid attendance. And uh, if you figure about a 60 or 65 dollar average ticket price, that gives you a a gate of somewhere around 600 thousand dollars for this event, um, which seems to be an, in, about in the range of all in. Tony Khan on Chris Jericho's podcast talking about talent had this to say. When, when a talent is pitched to you, what's the final thing that you're looking at before you say yay or nay? Because obviously I'm sure everyone's got ideas and I'm sure there's guys coming out of the woodwork. I've had every single old school brother calling me, hey brother, you got a spot for me over there? We're spending a ton of money on talent. We're building uh a great roster, a big and diverse roster of talent. I think what's important is that everybody brings something different, but additive. And the key thing is that we're not going to sign up every single talented person right. out there. You can't. And it was one of the problems with WCW. It was, it was that there were too many people under contract. <laughs> so and many guys. A lot of them were super talented yeah. and super great. And it's like when, if you were going to cut down their contracts, you'd be making some really tough decisions because there are a lot of really great people under contract at WCW, but you just don't need that many people under contract, especially this when. Isn't the same thing that's going on with WWE right now, though? They're signing everybody and they can't use everybody, you know? And for us, uh, I think, you know, we need to be discerning. We need to make this a sustainable business. And to me, I want to learn from mistakes people have made in the past. So let's sign up every valuable piece of talent we can that we have a plan for. But let's not sign up too many people that, you know, we can't push everybody we like. Let's not be guilty of the same thing that we mock other people for. Let's, mm-hmm. you know, we, let's not live in a glass house here. Let's, uh, right. let's, uh, really try and focus on the people we sign and make sure we're giving them a, a good chance and not just sign people up for the sake of, of having them. Because when you get into that, that's when you really, uh, damage the business and also hurt those guys' ability. Okay. So there's Tony Khan on talent. Uh, Obviously, a lot of unanswered questions for AEW. They are yet to run their first show. They will run their first show on May 25th. But just talking about how uh, they're, I don't know, being mindful of the way that something like WCW was when WCW had so many wrestlers under contract. And WWE is uh, getting into this mode where they're signing a lot of people. And uh, I think they're aware more than ever that there's other suitors out there for talent that uh, may take up talent to, that, that they want or may get into markets, get into areas of, of the business that they want to get into. Uh, we've seen that with the UK contracts, and uh, we see this with this number of, of 215 superstars under exclusive contracts, ranging from multi-year guaranteed contracts with established superstars to developmental contracts with our superstars in training. Uh, this is I'm reading from the annual report uh, that W just published. Uh, the other week, our superstars are highly trained and motivated independent contractors whose compensation is tied to the revenue that they help generate. We own the rights to substantially all our characters and exclusively license the rights we do not own through agreements with our superstars. 
So that's talking something somewhat about the intellectual property uh, related to wrestlers' names and things like that. Uh, that's why I understand that to be meaning there. But 215 wrestlers under contract with WWE, whether that's in the more traditional sense or just developmental contracts. So that does include people in developmental uh, who are in NXT, who are in the Performance Center, undebuted or what, whatever the case may be, 205 Live, NXT, whatever. So one risk factor I wanted to talk about here uh, – WWE in their annual report goes over risk factors. Uh, there's, I counted something like 25 of them. Uh, this is something that they publish every year in, in the uh, annual report and sometimes they add them. Uh, if new risk factors can be identified, they add them in quarterly reports. Um, and I think there's one risk factor that I, that isn't new. Uh, it's been there for years, I'm sure, but uh, just, just reviewing these, uh, as I, I don't know. I, I should do and sometimes do each year. Uh, I thought there was one that was particularly relevant to modern times. And, uh, this is on page 11 of the annual report and it reads, are, so this is, you know, they, they list all these risk factors, everything that could, you know, that, that they think their investors should know about that could just conceivably, anything that could, could conceivably challenge or harm their business, they list here. And I'm just, we're gonna, I'm going to talk about a couple of them. I'm going to talk about this one first, but it, it reads this. Our failure to retain or continue to recruit, recruit key performers could lead to a decline in the appeal of our storylines and the popularity of our brand of entertainment, which could adversely affect our operating results. Um, it goes on to say, our, our success depends in large part upon our ability to recruit, train, and retain athletic performers who have the physical presence, acting ability, and charisma to portray characters in our live events, video programming, and films. We cannot guarantee that we will be able to continue to identify and train these performers. Additionally, throughout, the his throughout our history, performers from time to time have stopped working for us for any number of reasons, and we cannot guarantee that we will be able to retain our current performers either during the terms of their contracts or when their contracts expire. Our failure to attract and retain key performers and increase in the costs required to attract and retain such performers or a serious and untimely injury or the death of or unexpected or premature loss of, or retirement for any reason of our key performers could lead to a decline in the appeal of our storylines and the popularity of our brand of entertainment, scheduling conflicts, etc. Um, so I think the interesting thing to, to think about there is there's a lot of wrestlers who are rumored to... Uh, be unhappy with WWE or be unhappy with their creative direction. Uh, we saw the revival uh, reportedly ask for their release. WWE seems to have responded to that by uh, making them tag team champions on Raw this most uh, recent Monday. So I think this is something to to watch for. Uh, this is something I think that if I were a WWE investor, I would want to be paying attention to uh, to think about why is somebody like Dean Ambrose uh, seem to be letting his contract run out. Uh, I would speculate that it's just it's a lack of creative fulfillment in that it, there's something about being in WWE that is leaving a lot of people, f a lot of talent, feeling like they are not creatively fulfilled. Uh, you can say what you want about all these wrestling fans who just complain all the time, but they don't actually turn off the program. They don't actually uh, give WWE any negative economic effect through their dis supposed dissatisfaction with the product. There's uh, nonetheless something going on in WWE. I would argue related uh, to that uh, alleged dissatisfaction with the product among fans. Uh, that's also leaving some of the performers themselves unsatisfied. Uh, so I think that's something to watch for, especially when, now that you have a, uh, a another suitor for talent out there with looking like some pretty serious money behind it. Maybe uh, a real television or media distribution deal imminent uh, that is in all elite wrestling. So uh, another um, risk factor 
that I saw being talked about this week that I want to talk about. So that was on page 11. This is on page 12. Uh, there's, there's a risk factor that is titled. And again, this is, this isn't like big breaking news or like anything serious that WWE is, is saying, wow, this, this is new. You have to watch out for this. This is something that WWE has been putting in its annual report, uh, for, for years. And it's, it's not news, but I saw this, uh, I saw this risk factor get a post about it on, uh, Squared Circle. And then, uh, about a day later, I saw some, uh, wrestling news sites pick this up as if it was, uh, new news. Just without without any real context around it to explain that this is this isn't something that's new. This is something that's very uh, regular. And if you'd been reading uh, annual reports for the last few years, you would have known that. So, th- so this risk factor is titled "The Unexpected Loss of the Services of Vincent K. McMahon Could Adversely Affect Our Ability to Create Popular Characters and Creative Storylines, or Could Otherwise Adversely Affect Our Operating Results." And basically, this is just saying that um, if Vince McMahon uh, were to become incapacitated. Uh, the loss of Mr. McMahon due to unexpected retirement, disability, death, or other unexpected termination for any reason could have material adverse effect on our ability to create popular characters and creative storylines, or could otherwise adversely affect our operating results. Um, I guess it's just sort of trying to identify, you know, identify that, hey, Vince McMahon is really uh, key and important to our, our business, and uh, he's the head of creative. Uh, there, there, is, there are sentences, at least in, in this year, and I would, I would guess maybe in last year, too, Maybe not though, because Alpha Entertainment is so new. But there, there is this line in here as well now talking about Alpha Entertainment, which of course is the parent company of the the, uh, the second uh, coming launch of the XFL. And, and this sentence reads: Mr. McMahon has established Alpha Entertainment LLC to explore investment opportunities across the sports entertainment landscapes, and Alpha Entertainment LLC plans to launch a professional football league in early 2020. Uh, goes on to say, while he has provided the company assurances that his focus on WWE will not be diverted by these efforts, any such diversion or perception of such diversion could adversely affect our operating results and could have a material adverse effect on our stock price. And I think that that's end quote. And I think that um, there's a perception, uh, there would be a lot of concern among investors if if there was a perception that Vince McMahon wasn't as involved with the day-to-day W business uh, as he has been for decades. Um Although I, I would argue, at least creatively, that would be in W's benefit to, uh, for if this were to, I don't know, spend more time with football than he did with, uh, with uh, the, uh, the creative direction of Ron SmackDown. So just wanted to note that and to note that that's not really new news, but I've seen that out there sort of as if it is new news. Um, in other news, uh, The Undertaker is going to be a part of StarCast. The Undertaker removed uh, W references from his social media recently, is now taking appearance fees with meet and greet appearances for $25,000 per hour. Uh, there's the flyer, if you're watching on YouTube, of The Undertaker uh, appearing at StarCast. Of course, StarCast 2 is is a is an event, a meet and greet type event in relation to the AEW uh, event, Double or Nothing, in Las Vegas. Of course, StarCast and uh, AEW are not uh, one in the same. They are, uh, StarCast is not an AEW show or not an AEW event or convention or whatever it is. Uh, Starcast is something that's put on by Conrad Thompson, who is a, I, th- I think, a, a real estate person and also a podcaster who's done, uh, if you don't know, he's done a podcast with Bruce Pritchard and Tony Schiavone and uh, probably, I think, Ric Flair. Um, so my understanding is that Conrad Thompson is not a uh, an official worker for AEW. He has some sort of agreement or handshake deal with AEW. He is not uh, an employee of AEW. Uh, to my knowledge, he's not been paid uh, anything by AEW. Uh, but you can understand why I think there was a, a lot of reaction to this about like, oh my God, is The Undertaker not part of 
WWE anymore or something. Uh, th- this is, uh, yeah, th- this, uh, has, has a lot of, uh, I don't know, uh, what would you say? Uh, trigger signals for some people in that the Undertaker, who at least I think of as the loyalist of the loyal WWE people of, uh, of the last 30 years. Uh, and now he's doing something that's very much not a WWE event. And that is Starcast, which is neighboring with, uh, this AEW event, which, uh, people are arguing about whether or not it's going to be a competition to WWE or not. And I've, I've, uh, attempted to listen to some podcasts this week talking about, uh, AEW and, and much of what I've heard is just, uh, people talking about what people are talking about. And, uh, I sort of have to pull my hair out and, uh, and go on to uh, listen to my news and politics podcasts as the uh, the alleged socialist that I have been alleged to be by one Christopher Mukigan Harrington. Uh, in in uh, other news, and I think the last thing that I'll that I'll hit on here, and my God, I've almost gone an hour just by myself, is New Japan. So let me pull up a, a not just a Google spreadsheet this time, but I am going to go into the Microsoft Excel. This is serious business now. Uh, I did some Google uh, Trends research. To think about, well, let's see. Wrestle Kingdom happened again just just this past January. Of course, that was Wrestle Kingdom 13. And I'm thinking, like, well, is New Japan has gained in popularity among, let's say, English-speaking fans or people from mostly English-speaking countries like the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Canada. Let's go with those for starters. Uh, certainly over the last, let's say, I don't know, five years, uh, awareness and fandom of New Japan is, I think everyone would agree, has increased. So my question is, was this year a continuation of that increase, or have we seen the peak? And uh, there's other metrics we would like to look at, but uh, not not all information in the world is, is available to us, unfortunately. Uh, but what I found was, I just, you know, I went into Google Trends, and I collected the Google web search data uh, by region for the countries that I just mentioned, uh, as well as Japan. So I collected Google web search data related to, you know, for searches related to New Japan, what I would say is these are web searches that are not just for New Japan, not just for the string NJPW, but is these are all searches that are in, I would call it, the New Japan bucket. Um, I collected that data for the entire world, for Japan, for the United States, for the United Kingdom, Australia, and Canada. And if you've looked at Google Trends before, you know that they do not give you absolute numbers. They're not telling you how many searches are being done, but they will tell you, here's the highest point within the timeline that you're at, that you're asking for. Let's call that 100. And then here's every other point, uh, and we will compare that to the high standard of 100. So the long and, and short of it here is that uh, interest in all of these English-speaking countries was higher around Wrestle Kingdom last year than it was for Wrestle Kingdom this year. Except for in Japan. In Japan, it was a little bit higher this year than it was last year. So, if you're looking at this on YouTube, you can see the, uh, the line graphs that I've got open here. I'm gonna make them a little bit bigger. So we've got, uh, Japan going from in 2000. So this is by week, by the way, which is as close as I can look at, at such a large timeline. So I'm going from January 2014, uh, through January 2019. So 2014, we're at a, so for Japan, 2014, we're at a 44, and that steadily increases. A 91 for 2018, a 100 for 2019. Uh, whereas worldwide, it was 82 this year, 100 the year before that, 66 the year before that. So we're at a higher point than we were at two years ago worldwide, but not at the high point of last year. Um, 
The United States, very similar, a 58 this year, a 100 the year before that, but a 45 the year before that. Uh, the United Kingdom, a 54 this year, a 100 the year before that, a 37 the year before that. Uh, Australia, a 46 this year, a 100 the year before that, and a 42 the year before that. Canada actually lower this year than it was two years ago, a 49 this year, a 100 the year before that, a 58 the year before that. So I think it's just uh, something to think about and that maybe interest in New Japan has peaked. Who knows what uh, what New Japan will deliver throughout the rest of this year, but uh, maybe you, you would, um, you don't want to take one metric and make giant conclusions from it, but but just to, it's I think it's something to keep in mind and uh, and uh, to see if it if other data comes out that would support a wider trend that that would continue to suggest that interest in New Japan peaked last year and maybe is leveling back off uh, in this year so far. In the last two years, uh, New Japan World has given, uh, in some form, uh, publicly said what the subscriber numbers were. And uh, we did not get any, any information on that this year. So I've got a, a, an image here on YouTube. Uh, 90,000 uh, after the 2018 Wrestle Kingdom. 90,000 subscribers on NJPW World. That would be up from uh, just before uh, the event. Uh, say like a week before that, 70,000. Uh, so 90,000 following Wrestle Kingdom last year, up from about 60,000 following Wrestling, Wrestle Kingdom in 2017. Uh, no number this year. Maybe you would speculate and put it uh, in conjunction with the information that we just talked about. Maybe, maybe interest in New Japan was down from the year prior, and uh, maybe subscribers were not up. But but then again, I don't know. Uh, Harold May is is, is uh, the president of New Japan now. There's been some changes in management. Maybe this company is, is making decisions somewhat differently. Who's to say? But... Uh, so something to keep in mind about, about New Japan. And uh, I, th- I think that's all I had to talk about uh, this week. And I've talked for almost an hour by myself. Oh, my God. So that's about it. You can uh, follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics on Twitter, at WrestleNomics on Instagram, which we almost never use. You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. Uh, you can follow my wrestling school, Grapplers Anonymous, on Facebook, on Twitter, at Graps Anonymous, at, on Instagram, at, at Graps Anonymous. So if you have any questions, feel free to tweet me. Feel free to email me if you have any uh any uh, interesting documents to pass along if you have any W stock analysis that you've come across by uh, financial firms or whatever it may be you can email those to wrestlenomics at gmail.com and until next time we'll see you later